Alright, I think we're live. Namaste and welcome to the Bharat Varta Weekly. Uh, we have a very special guest joining us on this weekly. We have Rajiv Mantri, who you've uh, heard and seen on multiple uh, episodes before. Rajiv is an investor and author joining us on this on his first uh, weekly. Actually, hi Rajiv, thank you so much for joining us. Hi Roshan, thank you for having me. Good to be back. And of course, we have our uh, regular Shrivatsa as well. Hey, Vatsa. How has the week been? Been pretty good. Hi, hi, Rajiv. Yeah. Hi, Vatsa. So, uh, yeah, we have plenty of uh, news and events to cover this week. It was pretty action-packed, actually. Uh, plenty of news from the world of politics, uh, geopolitics, in fact, sports, and you know other related topics, right? So, uh, so this week we'll discuss the anniversary of the emergency, uh, the COVID nineteen Delta Plus variant. NATO's uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, New Zealand's win in the first World Test Championship final, Prime Minister Modi's visit to meet Kashmiri leaders, and of course, UP being a top-ranked uh, state under the Smart Cities vision mission. Sorry. So before we get on with the news, uh, we put out a couple of very interesting episodes uh, last week. Uh, one on digital payments, and the other uh, uh, in our continuing Long India series, where we spoke to Mr. Sridhar Venkat. Uh, who is the ceo of the akshay patra foundation uh what's up what do you think about the digital payments episode i i think it was pretty good right i mean uh, the we focused mainly on the report uh, that was put out by ritu and smahi uh, and the report is pretty comprehensive uh, and it covers the evolution of uh, digital payments and also talks about uh, you know some of the changes in terms of the laws that are uh, going to take place which will accelerate this trend towards digital even more and we rounded off with discussing you know what are some of the other changes that are needed from a regulatory standpoint uh and it was a deep dive and it was very comprehensive so i would actually encourage everyone to go and listen to it if you're interested in uh, you know fintech digital payments and stuff like that yeah absolutely i mean i think uh, very comprehensive as you mentioned uh, and also it was a an absolute pri- privilege and honor to talk to mr shridhar venkat uh, who is the ceo of the akshay patra foundation uh, i mean the f- the phenomenal scale uh, at which they serve these meals right 1.8 million children every school day are, is uh, are served right and uh, uh, they just got phenomenal process and technology supporting this uh, scale as well right so uh mr venkat put it very uh, aptly actually he said we have the heart of a non profit and the mind of a corporate right to uh, explain you know how this works at scale and how they bring in those operational eff- efficiencies uh, again a, 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 an amazing episode do check it out for sure so all right moving on to the first piece of news uh, for this week earlier this week we saw the 46th anniversary of the emergency Uh, June twenty fifth marked the an- anniversary of the significant period in Indian history. Uh, the Indira Gandhi led Congress government imposed emergency from nineteen seventy five to nineteen seventy seven. It was, of course, one of the darkest periods for democracy in India. Prime Minister Modi on Friday tweeted that the dark days marked by the period can never be forgotten. He went on to say that this period witnessed a systematic destruction of institutions. The emergency was marked by massive amounts of state incarceration. stifling of dissent and a general crackdown on civil liberties what's up this was a it was a a black day a black period in indian history right uh, could you just summarize you know what this actually meant 
Sure. I mean, uh, to get into all the details, which probably require an entire episode, but I'll just focus on the key points, right? As you mentioned, it was you know probably the darkest period in India's history uh, in terms of how democracy was stifled and so on. The period leading to the emergency itself uh, was not very good for Indira Gandhi. There were you know the economy was in shambles. Inflation was very high. uh there were protests uh, across the country right so pretty much the uh, the northern belt of india and it started with gujarat uh where there was a student strike uh, the government there was run by the congress uh, by chimanbai patel was notoriously corrupt uh and then morarji desai undertook a fast unto death and that was when you know the assembly was dissolved uh and this kind of galvanized the movement against indira gandhi across the country you had the jp movement in bihar where again uh, the assembly was not dismissed but indira gandhi pretty much threw an open challenge to jp saying that you know if you want to come and fight fight the elections which were to be held in 1976 uh the jp movement itself has had a significant bearing on india's politics right you have a lot of leaders Uh, from bihar who came from the jp movement right people like nitish kumar lalu yadav and so on uh, in addition to that there was a railway strike which was called by george fernandes and that again kind of brought the entire nation to a standstill so uh, what was basically happening was all over the country there was a movement against indira gandhi uh, and people within the congress saw this as an opportunity to kind of get her out right and uh, but she was very clear that she was the only one who could steer the party to top it all there was this case in the allahabad high court by raj narayan which you know which is a very famous movement uh, in india's uh, electoral history where uh, you know the high, uh, the high court basically decided that indira gandhi had misused state power to win the elections uh, now uh, with all this uh, there was a verdict that was passed that her election to the parliament was null and void and uh, it was you know in the backdrop of all of this that indira gandhi got the president fakhruddin ali to sign the proclamation of emergency and when this happened uh, power was cut off to all the uh, printing presses that were you know run by the newspapers so you did not have newspapers for the next couple of days and all you could do was hear indira gandhi saying why the emergency is a great thing on all india radio so uh, i mean in every possible way uh, democracy was throttled people's rights were trampled upon uh, in addition to that there is this famous uh, movement which was spearheaded by her son sanjay gandhi which was uh, you know forced sterilization right many people were forcibly sterilized many people died as a result of that uh, so overall a very very black period uh, you know for india as a democracy uh, when we came out of it thankfully some of the laws that were passed uh, because you must remember that indira gandhi had a two thirds majority then and she could pretty much pass whatever laws she wanted in the parliament and some of those were kind of reversed when the janata party government came in and some basic checks were put in place to make sure that Uh, something like this would not happen again uh, so all in all uh, i think when people you know nowadays talk about emergency and so on they have little idea of how bad the situation was then and the only thing the supporters of emergency can talk about is that trains ran on time 
course. Uh, moving on, the United States and NATO have begun to formally withdraw their troops from uh, Afghanistan. This marks the beginning of the end of what President Joe Biden called the forever war. The US and NATO have had a presence in Afghanistan for the past two decades. The withdrawal comes amidst escalating violence against international forces and US soldiers. A deal signed last year between militants and President, former President Donald Trump, uh, foreign forces were to have left Afghanistan by 1st May. However, the day, uh, date has been pushed to 11th September, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Meanwhile, the US faces the logistical challenge of packing up and leaving. Reportedly, the military has been taking inventory, deciding what will be shipped back and what will be sold as junk on Afghanistan's mar markets. Uh, Rajiv, this is an epic uh, uh, change, right? I mean, so for 20 years, we've seen NATO and US in Afghanistan. Uh, what is the impact of their leaving right now? Well, uh, Roshan, so this conflict has uh, defined the geopolitics of uh, this region, the S South Asian region for the last 20 years, right? Since the 9-11 attacks. And uh, for people like us in our generation, almost uh, our entire sort of adult life has been uh, punctuated by uh, events uh, connected with this larger conflict playing out in Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, connected to the US terror sort of anti-terror uh, uh, movement after 9-11. So, so it is really a, I think, monumental sort of moment that is coming up in September. And uh, the exit of the US actually poses a number of challenges in that, uh, you know, the Taliban is actually making inroads again in Afghanistan and it is making a comeback. So, so what that portends for uh, Afghanistan's neighbors and the region remains hey, to be like that. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. So I was saying, I was saying what the exit of the US portends for, for Afghanistan and its neighbors uh, remains to be seen. I, I, I anticipate that it won't be actually uh, a very uh, stable situation, to put it mildly. Uh, so already uh, we know that, you know, as per intelligence reports from the US, something like 8 million people are already living in Afghanistan under essentially territory that's in Taliban control. Uh, so, you know, that's about 20% of Afghanistan's population. It's already in Taliban control. Uh, additionally, uh, around 50 districts of Afghanistan are now in the control of Taliban. So what happens after the U.S. leaves is, you know, likely is that, you know, the government in Kabul will, will collapse. That's what intelligence is saying, the U.S. intelligence. So, so the ramifications of that, uh, you know, Taliban making a comeback, uh, I think sooner or later for us here in India, that too, you know, presents a major security challenge. Right. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to the next uh, news, the highly transmissible Delta plus variation of COVID-19 has been detected in 10 states. Delta plus is a sublineage of the Delta variant first detected in India, which has acquired the spike protein mutation called K417N. Reportedly, this mutation could make it more transmissible is what they say. Uh, this mutation has also been linked with immune escape mechanisms and a potential reduction in monoclonal antibody response. Uh, in related news, the first confirmed case of the variant in Rajasthan was in a woman 
who had received both doses of the vaccine and recovered from the covid-19 infection previously what's that this is a pretty alarming development right i mean what do you suggest like in terms of preparations and so on uh i mean in uh, before we come to that let me just talk about you know a little bit about the history right it it seems like uh, each variant is sort of adding on or acquiring more potency uh, in addition to having acquired the potency from a previous version right and uh, while this was first discovered in england first it's a combination of you know the delta variant that pretty much ravaged india in the second wave and a mutation that uh, was found in south africa uh the the while the you know some of the experts are saying that it could be more transmissible there is a uh, very little evidence to suggest that it is actually more transmissible but having said that the delta variant itself which caused a lot of problems in india uh, was not really that prevalent uh, initially right and during the surge it it just it just uh, kind of grew at an exponential rate and uh, we were the entire health system was ravaged by it so uh, it's it's kind of it kind of makes sense that uh, you know people are asking for more care to be taken uh, lest we see a repeat of the second wave uh, you know majority of the uh, cases that have been identified are in maharashtra that is probably because uh, they do the most genome sequencing and they are home to the national institute of virology so a lot of research when it comes to viruses takes place in maharashtra and pune right so the fear is that uh, this can actually escape you know the immunity provided by vaccines now again at the moment there is no evidence that uh, the vaccines are less effective or ineffective against this uh, so considering all of this i think uh, it's it's kind of difficult to say at this stage whether this will cause a wave 3 or whether you know this will blow up but having said that there are only few things that we can do right as a country which is one we have had a stellar rate of vaccination in the last week i think we vaccinated upwards of 3 to 4 crores in the last 7 days yeah. which is a which is a phenomenal achievement and we just have to continue you know at the same pace get as many people vaccinated as possible the second thing is obviously to wear a mask maintain social distancing and so on but considering that this is a new variant and probably needs to be isolated so that it doesn't blow up what needs to be stepped up additionally is contact tracing and that's again something the maharashtra government is doing you know it's putting a lot of effort in doing contact tracing it is trying to find out if these people who have this variant they are vaccinated where they have traveled whom they have met so the same thing will need to be done across states to make sure that this doesn't spread uh, at this moment there is no magic bullet or medicine so the way to go ahead is just continue to vaccinate and try to stay as safe as possible yeah i guess uh meanwhile uttar pradesh has ranked as the best state under the smart cities mission madhya pradesh was ranked second and tamil nadu third Indore and Surat were jointly named the best cities by the Housing and Urban Affairs Ministry. The ministry said in a in a statement that 22% in terms of the total value of projects proposed and 52% in terms of the total number of projects proposed by the 100 smart cities have been completed so far. 
under the Pradhan Mantri Awas Yojana, urban, the ministry said 1.12 crore houses have been sanctioned, of which 50 lakh had been completed. Uh, Rajiv, this seems like a pretty bold mission, uh, e- even while we are under the grips of this pandemic, right? Yeah, Roshan. So, so essentially, the Smart Cities mission is one of uh, the three main urban transformation, urban infrastructure uh, programs that the Union government runs under the Urban Affairs Ministry. So, besides the Smart, C- Smart Cities mission, there is the uh, uh, Atal mission for uh, urban transformation and the PM Awas Yojana for uh, urban sector that you just mentioned. So, uh, what was announced recently is actually... Uh, there was a ranking put out by the government saying which states and you know which cities, which cities and which states are making the most uh, use and taking the mo- maximum benefit out of this central scheme. And uh, one of the cities which has consistently ranked high in this is Indore. So you know we often hear that you know what is the point of smart cities? What is a smart city? Uh, simply understood, a smart city uh, mission. The smart city mission is a program for urban transformation where uh, the central government has sanctioned certain funds uh, for specific programs in waste management, uh, the water sort of area, uh, and other kinds of, you know, uh, mobility, uh, urban mobility requirements and, you know, traffic management, all those things are covered under smart cities. So, so what we are seeing from Uttar Pradesh is actually, uh, it, is, it is probably the best performing state now for the smart cities mission in the country. And uh, that is so because uh, in all the rounds, in all the, I think there are five rounds that have been completed now, uh, UP has put forward cities as candidates to receive some of these funds and implement the programs. It has disbursed funds uh, both at the state level and benefited from central support also. And uh, uh, as a result of that, uh, now it has the highest number of cities that are uh, sort of uh, highly ranked by uh, the Smart Cities mission. Uh, so, in fact, you know, there are, there are states in India which are completely rejecting the central program. Uh, you know, they have decided that they don't want to participate at all. And as a result, they have zero states, uh, sorry, zero cities from the states. And uh, uh, UP, of course, I think is setting the benchmark for the country by sort of fully participating and kind of working with the union government to frankly uh, deliver something which is you know, of, of, of grave importance, right, for economic growth. Right, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, I think way back last year, we had covered uh, some of the infrastructure development uh, projects uh, of Uttar Pradesh uh, uh, under the, uh, you know, Yogi Yogi uh, government, the Yogi Ji government. Uh, so do definitely check that episode out. It's very comprehensive again, right? Uh, all right. Uh, some news from the world of politics, uh, Prime Minister Modi met the leaders of Kashmir earlier this week uh, in an attempt to chalk out the future political course of action in Jammu and Kashmir. Prime Minister Modi convened a meeting with attendance of 14 leaders, including four former chief ministers. This is the first meeting to take place since the abolition of uh, or abrogation of Article 370 and splitting of the state into two union territories. The four former chief ministers of Jammu and Kashmir who attended the meeting are Farooq Abdullah, Gulam Nabi Azad, Umar Abdullah and Mahbubha Mufti. So, what's up? Uh, you know, we did put out an episode sometime back on one year after 370, right? Uh, with uh, uh, Sunanda Vashrishth and uh, I forget the other person, I mean, uh, but yeah. Srimoy, uh, Srimoy Talukdar. Srimoy, Srimoy Talukdar, of course, right. 
So, and that was pretty comprehensive and everyone was pretty optimistic for the future. Uh, what do you think this signifies? So, uh, I mean, this is, as you mentioned, the first time the Prime Minister has met all of them. But the interesting thing was the meeting was held without any agenda, nor were, you know, any conditions put forth by, uh, you know, these 14 leaders, uh, the two major parties uh, from Jammu and Kashmir, the National Conference and the PDP. Uh, previously, they were pretty, uh, you know, fixated on the fact that 370 had to go uh, before they start talking to the central government, right? But now I think there's a recognition that Article 370 having gone is faith accompli. It is not going to be reversed, uh, at least not by, you know, till this particular uh, ruling dispensation is in place and possibly not by anyone else because, you know, it, it could be political suicide across the country while it may pay some dividends uh, in JNK. Now, and in fact, Omar Abdullah went to the extent of saying that there was no po point talking to this government about it. And the steps that were laid out, you know, for all of these uh, political parties from Kashmir were very clear. The first was that delimitation would be carried out first in Jammu and Kashmir for the assembly segments. Uh, you know, all of these parties, they were talking about wanting statehood first. But it was made clear to them that things will happen in a certain sequence. First, there would be delimitation, which uh, and it also meant that the constitution of India as it applies should uh, apply in Jammu and Kashmir fully, which includes you know things like SCST reservation and so on. So before any talk of all of these, these things have to be uh, in place. And possibly the road ahead for statehood will be tied to the way the economy functions, right? There is a lot of conflict uh, that these parties have benefited from, right, uh, in Jammu and Kashmir and uh, economically. So from that point of view, it's, it's like a carrot and stick approach where they're being asked to move away from uh, sort of encouraging conflict for personal ends to making sure that law and order is supreme uh, in the state, in the first in the union territory and then whenever it becomes a state, the state of Jammu and Kashmir. So I think these messages would have been sent very clearly uh, to, to all of these parties. Uh, the other thing that I think would have been made clear to them is that, you know, Ladakh will continue to stay as a union territory and there is no way it's ever going to be part of Jammu and Kashmir again. So uh, I think a lot of credit also has to go to Manoj Sinha, who has been Lieutenant Governor of JNK in the way he's handled the entire situation. He is probably the first uh, politician to have been the uh, Lieutenant Governor of JNK. And the way he has, you know, handled the, uh, the local elections and, uh, you know, made sure that uh, there's a lot of focus on infrastructure development. There is, you know, some 12,000 crores worth of capital expenditure that's planned in, in the Union Territory, uh, which is more than double of what it was you know, the earlier. So from that point of view, Manoj Sinha has had a very critical role to play in bringing, uh, you know, Jammu and Kashmir into the mainstream. And I think the parties have been given a clear message that they should also focus more on how to bring JNK mainstream by improving the economy, focusing on jobs, infrastructure, and so on. So, uh, I mean, while we have to wait and watch what the final outcome is, 
but i think the messaging is very clear from the central government that uh, deescalate move away from conflict move away from you know encouraging militancy and that's the path by which you will attain statehood and not uh, not in any other way right absolutely uh and finally earlier this week new zealand won the first world test championship final the championship was plagued with issues of bad weather resulting in matches being pushed to the reserve day the team beat out india in a nail biting reserve day match at the hampshire bowl uh, they won by about 8 wickets after a chase of 139 from 53 overs kane williamson and ross taylor built a match winning partnership of 96 after ashwin dismissed both openers uh, post the tea break this makes new zealand the first team to win uh, the world test uh, championship uh, mace uh, rajiv uh, the sport was played in very good spirit right and i am perhaps the only one who missed it no such a great contest roshan uh you know this is the finest of cricket and frankly the the best that you can watch uh, at the highest level for any game actually the kind of uh, good spirited competition that we saw in this match was really something and of course uh, you know we all know how new zealand sort of very narrowly you know almost in a uh, Uh, very uh, absurd sort of way they had lost the cricket world cup uh, the one day international cricket world cup couple of years ago and uh, you know there was obviously a lot of disappointment for both uh, the team as well as you know for you know they are such a nice team they are reputed to be such a nice set of players that uh, many fans were also uh, quite heartbroken when they lost that match 2 years ago so in a way uh, you know one feels happy for new zealand that they have finally won an icc icc sort of trophy an icc tournament which is very prestigious in obviously world cricket uh india obviously played well but you know somewhere they couldn't set a high enough target on the last day so i think losing those wickets uh in the early session uh, that proved to be very costly right uh just to add on to that roshan uh i think uh, you know new zealand and india have both been sort of uh, i mean after the 2013 champions trophy they kind of struggled india lost a champions trophy final to pakistan india lost a world t20 final as well right to i think it was sri lanka and new zealand lost to 50 over world cup final so it was almost as if you know someone's bad luck had to sort of come to an end and uh, you know new zealand is a pretty small country right the population is probably half of that of bangalore and from there and it, cricket is not even the major sport there right rugby is so from that to have this is probably uh, according to me the all time best new zealand test team right and it's at you all the time there five quick bowlers who uh, were at you all the time you know perfect for conditions like the ones in england uh, in addition i think india kind of missed a trick uh, you know in terms of uh, in terms of possibly uh, playing one spinner too many although most of us wanted you know both jadeja and uh, ashwin to play no, no two doubts about it having said that uh, i think new zealand also had the advantage they were in england for a couple of tests and so they were much more you know acclimatized to the conditions and they outbowled england in england in the second test which in itself is a 
is a fairly great thing right not many teams managed to do that in england so well deserved victory i would say yeah and uh, i mean I, as i said i hadn't watched a single ball of this match but uh, you know uh, it was very heartening to see very positive messages on twitter you know from uh, everyone uh, indian fans as well right uh, no one really taking this as a very sour loss and uh, everyone kind of acknowledged that it was a hard fought sort of a, a championship right so yeah fantastic news all right so it has that, been a, it has been a, this yeah. uh, these past few weeks have been a treat right for yeah. those who, those who watch the sports i mean the french open yeah uh, how how amazing was that like the uh, games in that uh, sort of championship there absolutely i mean absolutely. Uh, cliched as it uh, sounds i think sports has won ultimately right so <laughs> yeah and i can now join the star sports join the star sports club <laughs> <laughs> you can become yeah, cricket is the winner <laughs> can become india coach now <laughs> let's uh, let's move on from this uh, fast as a tracer bullet so <laughs> all right on that positive note uh, we come to the end of a fascinating bharatwarta weekly thank you so much again for all of your love and support please keep the comments and suggestions uh, coming in uh, right uh, we have more interesting episodes coming up uh, and this is the 47th uh, episodes of episode of the week- weekly and uh, you know just to remind you from the 51st weekly onwards we will be a uh, premium subscriber only and uh, you know couple of different ways you can support us you can join our youtube community uh, just click join and pick whatever plan suits you Uh, or you could also support us on Patreon. Uh, we're on Patreon at Bharatwarta. So look forward to your support uh, in the time to come as well. Again, thank you so much, Rajiv, for making the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Vatsa, for being there as well. And uh, stay you, safe. Thanks. Stay safe, everyone. Take care, and hope you get the vaccine as well. And uh, yeah, see you soon. Bye. Bye.